You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, Artistic Director and CEO, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. Now in its second year, the series explores critical exhibitions and projects that have shaped Australian art since 1968. Ambitious, contested, polemical, genre-defining and genre-defying exhibitions that have informed and transformed the cultural landscape along with our understanding of what constitutes art itself. To begin, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work and welcome visitors here at ACCA. And we extend our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people. Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of significant selected projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to new institutional models, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. The first year of lectures are available as podcasts on ACCA's website. This year, in response to COVID-19, we are pleased to present the series as filmed illustrated lectures online, with the second season continuing to explore new models and modes of exhibition making that emerge in the 1980s and 90s, including the Asia Pacific Triennial and 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art, as well as exhibitions and projects led by First Nations artists and curators in Australia and internationally, among others. Defining Moments is presented in association with our long-standing partner Abercrombie & Kent, and research partner, the Centre of Visual Art, COVA, at the University of Melbourne. It is supported by our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R, and our event partners, the Melbourne Gin Company, CAPI and the City of Melbourne, all of whom we sincerely thank and acknowledge. For our second lecture in this year's series, we are delighted to welcome artist Peter Cripps, who will revisit the influential exhibition and publication Recession Art and Other Strategies from 1985, which he curated at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane, where Peter was director from 1984 to 1986. As an artist, Peter Cripps has exhibited widely in Australia and internationally since the 1970s, with major survey exhibitions including Peter Cripps Towards an Elegant Solution here at ACCA in Melbourne in 2010, and Peter Cripps Endless Space at the IMA Brisbane in 2012. Between 1973 and 1988, Peter worked as a curator in various other roles within a number of major Australian museums, galleries and alternative art spaces, as well as in a freelance capacity. Following Peter's lecture, we're pleased to welcome Shannon Goodwin as respondent. Shannon is Director of Bus Projects. He is a founding co-convener of All Conference, and the editor of the recent publication, Permanent Recession, a handbook on art, labor, and circumstance, published by Onomatope in 2019. Shannon will offer a short reflection on the legacies of recession art and other strategies and its contemporary relevance, following which he will join Peter Cripps in conversation. Without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Peter Cripps and Shannon Goodwin. I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations 
as sovereign custodians of the land on which I live and work and extend my respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people. I'd also like to thank Max Delaney uh, and the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art for inviting me to be part of this lecture series, Defining Moments. In 1982, Robert McPherson stamped two hand-spaced gloves were posted from Tawong, Queensland, to Peter Tyndall at Hepburn Springs in Victoria, passing through the network of Australia Post, finally arriving in pristine condition and undoubtedly providing a lot of laughs and confusion along the way. Over a 35-year period from 1979 to 2014, some 13,000 items of correspondence were sent and received through Australia Post by these two artists. Peter Tindall's collection was gifted to Goma Research Library in 2014. In fact, the correspondence between Tindall and McPherson is said to be responsible for keeping the Hepburn Springs Post Office open when threatened with closure due to rationalisation some years ago. Handspace, founded in 1981 and directed by Peter Tyndall, uh, forms one of the series of strategies that is part of the Recession Art Exhibition. My name is Peter Cripps and I am an artist who for 15 years worked in museums and galleries during the 1970s and 80s. From 1984 to 86, I moved from Melbourne to Brisbane to take over the role of director of the Institute of Modern Art. The IMA operated since 1975, was considered to be a small alternative exhibition space by the funding bodies, and at that time comprised two staff. The model of funding was basic, to say the least. Enough to generate a program of exhibitions, but not much more. Recession Art and Other Strategies forms a part of the 1985 exhibition program, which consisted of 12 exhibitions and must be considered in that context. In the case of the exhibition, the IMA provided exhibition funding and the catalogue was produced with funding from a private sponsor. The five artists included in the exhibition were Gunter Christman, Robert McPherson, John Nixon, Peter Tyndall and myself. In this lecture, I will review the exhibition Recession Art and Other Strategies, provide a summary of the principal activities, the context, the artists and their works, interrogate its legacy as, a, as well as explore perceived synergies between historical and contemporary independent art practice. Additionally, we'll explore the role and relevance of this type of artistic thinking and practice to the contemporary context. Richard Stringer photographed the IMA exhibition program for 39 years, from 1975 to 2014, and this record of images is now housed in the John Oxley Library in Brisbane. This large undertaking at the IMA was done at his own expense as a way of recording a contemporary cultural history of Queensland. The fact that all images are in black and white was a practical decision as images could be processed in-house without the additional cost of sending them out to a colour lab. 
they comprise 12 installation photographs and a further set of 20 photographs of individual works included in the exhibition taken for the catalogue. These photographs capture the didactic nature of the display, exploring the visual sub-themes of the exhibition, showing a group of works engaged in a particular dialogue. Whereas the catalogue contextualises these works in relation to a broader discussion of artistic strategies and historical circumstance. In the introduction to the catalogue, it examines the economic and art world context that uh, contemporary art artists of a previous generation worked in. This is exemplified in the case of Albert Tucker, who late in his career was described as reaching the pinnacle of his achievement in Australian art by Memory Holloway when reviewing this exhibition, Holloway, The Age, 1982. Yet at that time, Tucker still owned the majority of his key artworks considered to be the pinnacle of his artistic achievement. Australian museums has, ha, have a tendency of employing strategies of promoting very young artists with the result that they are rapidly overexposed, leading to burnout. These type of commercial and institutional strategies guarantee a quick turnover of artists and styles, often aligned with international trends. The shallowness and restricted vision of the art market and small audiences encourage more of a surface engagement with art practice. Artists engage with post-object and conceptual orientated art practice, more ephemeral in nature, create a crisis for commercial galleries worldwide. With just a few galleries in Australia, Waters Gallery in Sydney and Penacotha Gallery in Melbourne, uh, exhibiting occasional non-commercial exhibitions. A few representative pieces were acquired by national and state galleries. The alternative exhibition spaces that evolved during this period enabled artists to exhibit more conceptual artworks in a professional manner without the pressure of presenting marketable artworks. Robert Hughes um, writes in 1960, there are few private collections and the state galleries and public collections have small budgets, end of quote. Hughes, uh, recent Australian painting. 20 years later in 1983, the Australia Council report, the artists in Australia today, supports Hughes' statement. The commercial market for art in Australia has always been small, even in times of economic growth, end of quote. The early 1980s saw a wave of, of Australian exhibitions travel overseas, which created a strong sense of optimism. But by 1985, the reality became apparent. A few of the front runners included in these exhibitions were a little better off, but once again, the established pattern of front running, which involved just a few artists and a small art market, was being repeated. The Australian art system tends to operate as a microcosm of the American model, with the market demands for each new style in Australia being quickly satisfied. The quick art hero is a product of this process, and the promotion of a handful of artists through the honeymoon system adds impetus to this rapid turnover of styles. Turning to the nature of recession art then, 
Such art can be characterised by the strategies adopted by the artists. The backbone of recession art was not a, a tight-knit group of artists working in a house style. Rather, the artists in this exhibition shared leanings towards minimal process and conceptual art. These styles contributed towards their future development in different ways. During the 70s, John Nixon and I could be seen as occupying a position outside the parameters of the commercial gallery structure. Both of us used the means of conceptual art, though developed to different ends. Nixon's archive, which was developed through the 70s, by its very nature, a conceptual work. The importance of the work lies in, in, it, in the context, which um, just as important uh, formally extends the serial practice developed in the 60s. Although the archive and the caravan, a large work by myself, can both be seen as depositories, Nixon's archive plays with the classic notion of infinity, allowing the never-ending compilation of parts. The physical nature of the caravan, with its many parts and elaborate structural framework, places this work in a, uh, a position outside the mainstream conceptual framework of the time. The sheer mobility of the work and its reference to the Granger Museum also speculates on the nature of the museum. Peter Tyndall, Robert McPherson, Gunter Christman had established reputations as painters during this period. However, their activities extended far beyond the limits imposed by painting. Parallel to the mainstream gallery careers, these three artists developed more ephemeral, experimental and playful art practices that employed a range of medium. For example, in 1974, Peter Tyndall made audio tapes of laughter titled Ha Ha. Chrisman developed and recorded a series of sound sculptures. In addition, McPherson and Christman exchanged what they called dry boxes. Willem's cigar boxes usually contained a number of small objects found on the street or factory floor. The found objects placed in the dry boxes were not attached and moved around freely, creating new visual comp compositions. Due to the private nature of these objects, very few people knew of their existence. These parallel developments allowed the artist to experiment and work freely over a large area of possibilities. In the case of Tyndall and Christman, these works would have appeared out of character with their mainstream painting practice. The works in the exhibition. Uh, Gunter Christman was represented in the exhibition by two quite different groups of works. Uh, the first group is a selection of sound sculptures, Audio Plastic Number no. 4, 1974-77. The second group consisted of small boxes of objects he uh, referred to as water tanks and dry boxes, plus paintings which used these devices as subject matter. The second group of works, first carried out in 1975, were small boxes used as tools for painting. These boxes were often exchanged with McPherson. The three boxes by McPherson were the source material for the three paintings by Christman included in this exhibition. 
I was represented by two groups of works. The first, a series of constructions from a continuing series, materials such as circular cardboard boxes um, used in cheese container, camembert containers, cardboard cylinders, tin cans, glass mirrors were used um, in these constructions in that these works were composed of inexpensive, readily available materials and simple to construct, can operate as a series or as independent works. They display recession art characteristics. The second group of works by myself was the Blunt Reports, a series of published bulletins which acted as exhibition spaces, which will be um, discussed later in the lecture. Robert McPherson is represented in the exhibition by numerous works, including two sets of serial drawings, drawing from the page alphabet series, um, 1975, and uh, later work, drawings from the page series, 1977. Cubism, another aspect, parts of a frog, one and two, 1982. A large series of exchange works with Tyndall, and the previously mentioned exchange works with uh, Christman. The exchange works with Tyndall cover a series of works concerning puns on the subject of frogs and works derived from the subject of hand space. In drawings from the page series 1977, a single page from a scientific magazine forms the ground for each drawing. In this series, rather than letters, of the alphabet, as in the previous series, words such as that, who, camel, become the points of the system. In the case of the, of the drawing that, the first time the word appears on the page, a, um, a line's drawn to the next that, which appears. As the artist systematically works down the page, lines were drawn linking each new that to the next, with another line being drawn back to the starting point. The system creates a series of graph-like lines splaying out in a triangular fashion from the key words. In this, as well as previous series of drawings, McPherson develops a graphic system of analysis by using Western logics and methods of reading. Each drawing starts from the top left-hand corner, works through the body until it finishes at the bottom right-hand corner. In 1981, John Nixon commenced the practice of assembling all of his works under the collective title, Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition. Nixon was represented by five works. Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Black Square, 1981. Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Suitcase, 1984. Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Black Cross, 1984. Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Cardboard Box, 1981, and Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Blue, 1985. Nixon constructed an art replete with historical references. The, the reoccurring use of the iconic cross was employed to recall Russian constructivism and suprematism. In the work Self-Portrait, Non-Objective Composition, Suitcase, 1985, Nixon represents a suitcase into which he has placed a newspaper page with a large brown cross painted on it. The cross lies at the base of the suitcase 
as its only content. The case is placed on the floor with the lid open. The viewer must peer over and into the case before discovering the recessed cross image. The cross, the suitcase, the cardboard box and newspaper are mundane social domestic units. Each of these units reappears in everyday culture. By presenting one symbolic unit, uh, reference to others is implicit, inferring a comparison to seriality. Peter Tyndall is represented in the exhibition by two large works, Hand Space, Cultural Consumption Production, and Detail, A Person Looks at a Work of Art, Someone Looks at Something, dot, 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 1980, Cultural Consumption Production. A series of books covering the painting motive attached, titled, A Person Looks at a Work of Art, Someone Looks at Something, dot, 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 1979-1982-1984-1984-Cultural-Consumption-Production-A-Material-Exchange-With-McPherson-Previously-Referred-To-In-The-Work-Detail-A-Person-Looks-At-A-Work-Of-Art-Someone-Looks-At-Something-1980
exhibition venues uh, was redefined and operated as an intellectual space in order to place other strategies in its historical context. I would like to re um, briefly refer to a European precedent. The Romanian artist Andre Cardia worked in Paris and New York between 1967 and 78. His art consisted of a wooden staff composed of short round wooden sections painted in different colours. The staff was displayed by being held in his hand or leant against a wall in museums and galleries into which he cho chose to enter. Cardia sent out invitation notifications identifying the location of such exhibitions. For example, Museum of Modern Art New York and he would go there and lean his staff against the wall, and that was his exhibition. Um, these events then appeared cited as exhibitions in his CV. Cardia developed a nomadic art uh, that questioned the, the art power structure and its institutions. Models such as these were an indication of what was possible to achieve by a radical rethinking of the art system and clearly informed many of the strategies used in this exhibition. During this period, other strategies were developed that were an extension of existing contemporary art galleries. Art Projects Amsterdam published a broadsheet bulletin uh, which operated as both an exhibition um, notice and artist space. A broadsheet accompanied each exhibition beyond the gallery and into printed space. The importance of this publication was its ability to further disseminate ideas and images. For those unable to see the exhibition, it became an exhibition space in its own right. Uh, the broadsheet was also developed as an artwork in itself. From May 1969 onward, the gallery focused on conceptual artists. Subsequently, in response to the inadequacy of the existing gallery structure, a diverse range of spaces came into operation. In the Australian context, John Nixon pioneered this trend with Art Projects Annex program in Melbourne, 1979, Space Victoria, 1979, Institute of Temporary Art, Melbourne, 1979, QSpace and QSpace Annex, Queensland, 1980 and 81. From these emerged others such as QED, 1980, directed by Richard Dunn, followed by N-Space Sydney, 1981, directed by Amance Tillers. The independence and mobility of these spaces was utilised to the full. The temporary spaces were often established by artists for their own use as well as their like-minded peers, allowing work to be shown in an independent environment and with great frequency. Uh, stimulus gained from interaction between the artists involved in some of these spaces created a climate of inventiveness in their artworks. In the case of Nixon and McPherson, a degree, a degree of one-upmanship or artistic chess developed in their exhibitions at QSpace and QSpace Annex. A, a flexible method was developed. By posting out notification cards, the lounge room 
a car park or a restaurant became an exhibition space for a designated period of time, an hour, a day, or as the case may be, the period of time it took to eat your lunch at McDonald's. The invitation method allowed the artist to determine who the audience to any exhibition might be. In addition to the physical spaces, the printed exhibition spaces or bulletin broadsheets also extended and expanded activities of, of some of these artists. Blunt Report 1975, edited by myself. Um, Hand Space 1981, directed by Peter Tyndall. Pneumatic Drill 1981, edited by John, John Nixon. Are our examples of this endeavour the first two being represented in this exhibition. The Blunt Report, in contrast to hand space previously discussed, was a versatile printed space. It has, it has its precedence in the Art and Projects Amsterdam bulletins that I received in the late 60s, early 70s. The name Blunt Report refers to Anthony Blunt, the celebrated art historian and Poussin expert and later Russian spy. Throughout the 70s, the commercial galleries were unable to provide the promotion and professional support structures desired by these artists. With their increased output, an exhibition every two years seemed totally inadequate. Other strategies evolved to fulfil these needs. The exhibition explores the process that an interconnected group of artists use to develop and maintain an art practice in an economically difficult time. It explores the importance of interpersonal dialogues and the way that these friendships help develop a more sustained and critical art practice in the absence of a slow public interest and discourse. The level of dialogue and exchange between uh, artists in Australia and internationally often remained hidden from view as a private discourse and not often made public. The level of exchange during the um, 1960s to the 80s was substantial and carried out with greater quality and friendship, often extending through artists to a few curators and dealers in an open, generous way. In my own case, I was in contact with art projects in Amsterdam, a contemporary art gallery with an international outlook. At that time, the two directors there suggested I contact Solowit in New York, which I did, August 1970. I later installed Sol's drawings in a number of state galleries in Australia as part of the some recent American art exhibition, 1973. These internal and external dialogues contradict the notion of isolation, both internationally and interstate, with dialogues between artists, in some cases, lasting for more than 40 years. I think the breadth of dialogue is revealed when you consider that um, Daniel Thomas, curator of Australian art, Gallery of New South Wales, wrote to Marcel Duchamp back in 1967, Daniel's Australian ready-made was sent to Duchamp at the end of his life. And Tina Duchamp responded to the gesture after his death. This talks about the interconnectedness of people and ideas. It was only much later that I realised that the central axis of the exhibition was based on meeting Robert McPherson, 
He knew each of the artists and introduced me to Gunter Christman. Throughout my early career, the only artists of an older generation I knew were my teachers at art school who comprised some of the Centre 5 group of artists in Melbourne. When I took up the role as director at the IMA, I met Robert for the first time. Through spending time with Robert and his partner, Beeb Senior, I was able to contextualise my interest with an older generation and understand that artist strategies and approaches to practice was a dominant sub-narrative in artist discussions. As I read, I realised that uh, such discussions among artists had occurred since the emergence of the annual Salon exhibitions in Paris in the 1850s. So much of artists' thinking and approach to practice and communication with their peers remains hidden from view. Over time, as artefacts make their way into museums and library collections, more of the interconnectedness between artists becomes known. As previously mentioned, I was in contact with art projects in Amsterdam. Robert Rooney was also in contact with art projects, buying catalogues and was on their mailing list as well. He, he was also in contact with Solowit um, through this period. This was previously unknown to me. This type of dialogue nationally is further illustrated by Robert McPherson and Peter Tyndall's large body of correspondence as previously discussed. The Recession Art Exhibition includes much of, of this correspondence up until 1983 and all of the material is now in the GOMA collection in Brisbane. Another important set of correspondence was recorded by Maggie Finch, curator of photography National Gallery of Victoria in the publication Information Exchange, Robert Rooney and Roger Cuttleforth. She published similar important correspondence between the two artists. Uh, Roger Cuttleforth was a British-born, New York-based conceptual artist and he wrote to Rooney in Melbourne, and I quote, over a seven-year period of writing of written dialogue between Cutforth in the United States and England and Rooney in Melbourne, during which time they never met in person. According to Finch, the, cor the correspondence consisted of some 60 letters, postcards and parcels. Charles Green in 2001 and Maggie Finch in 2010 have both written about the dialogue between these two artists. In 2010, Rooney gifted his collection of conceptual artworks and related correspondence to the NGV, thus making it publicly available. From 1978, when communication stopped between them, until Green's publication in 2001, for 23 years the dialogue remained hidden, hidden below the surface of contemporary historical discourse. This was a private dialogue between friends sharing thoughts on art practice and its social discourse. With the gifting of these two collections, and most importantly the correspondence being made public, uh, what has been private dialogue uh, exploring art production, dis distribution and display was made widely available. Rooney also wrote and received letters during this period from a range of other artists, such as Ian Byrne, 
Mel Ramston, uh, Mel Bochner, uh, Ed Rushka, Vita Aconci, Sal Lewitt, um, Dale Hickey, but it was the letters from Roger Cutforth which formed the most sustained, significant and influential correspondence, end of quote, Finch, 2010. Friendships between Australian and overseas artists is an important part of this dialogue. In 1981, Sol nominated Australian artist Robert Jacks as his successor in the New York Cultural Centre exhibition at Manhattan. Each chosen established artist nominated another artist as their peer or successor. Solowit over the years communicated with many Australian artists, which is detailed in Anne Stevens' article. Few international artists have made such an impact in Australia as Solowit. Anne's Art, Volume 8, 2007. In 1979, Carl Andre um, came to Melbourne as part of the Mummer exhibition, Some Recent American Art at the NGV, which I was involved with as an exhibitions officer. Um, Carl Andre was to carry out a site work in Melbourne. He was introduced to Robert Hunter to gain his help in searching for art materials. They spent time together and quickly became friends. The following year, um, Carl Andre, one of minimalist foremost sculptors, wrote to his German dealer, Comrade Fisch, Fischer, with a feverish introduction. I quote, I am convinced that Robert Hunter is the best painter you have never seen, that I will bet you the price of his air ticket. If you don't like the show he does for you, I will pay for it. Fisher took, took the bet, end of quote. Ray Edgar, Sydney Morning Herald, um, 2018. For this lecture, I have focused on just a few Australian artists active in the 1960s through to the 80s and their ne networks of communication. There were many other artists communicating with a broad spectrum of both national and international artists and communities. As Cutterforth has said, it was to do with having some sort of consensus about what was going on in the art world, end of quote. Friendships were developed between artists, often across generations. Those artists looking to see what peers in different cities or parts of the world were engaged with and what they thought about the uh, contemporary context and their location. In the 1960s and 70s, pre-digital, communication was mostly by mail. In the Australian context, through reading art magazines such as Studio International and Art Forum, one could request by mail catalogues and publications being sold by overseas galleries. Robert Rooney and I both bought catalogues from Art Projects Amsterdam and were on their mailing list um, from the late 60s. These types of led, um, networks led to further contacts with artists and other galleries of interest. Active at that time, many of the artists associated with Robert Rooney, who was born in 1937, were also artist writers such as Ian Byrne, 1939, uh, Adrian Piper, 1948, uh, Roger Cutforth, 1944, and Mal Ramston, 1944, and Sol Lewitt, 1928, 
there is a mirroring or reflection of the American post-war generation with Robert Morris, Don Judd, and Robert Smithson as writers, and Yvonne Rayner, Trish Brown, in interviews, who took control of their narrative and actively participated in the shaping of the art discourse of that time. Certainly, my generation of artists were seeing texts by this group of post-war artists as licensed to generate our own discourse. The critique in their writing gave us language to question the type of art world infrastructure we had inherited. The relevance of primary source materials such as artists' interviews and writing was very prevalent in the 1960s through to the 80s, the date of this exhibition. Art magazines from this earlier period talked to the desire to read first-person um, accounts and highlight the resistance to the art historical account and its manifestation in art museums. At that time, Avalanche magazine, um, 1970 to 76, included artist interviews as a key part of its content. Interviews published in interview publications such as View from 1978 onward provided in-depth interviews with artists. VIEW was just one of a series of publications using interviews with artists as its primary format. This emphasis on primary source material talks to the desire to read first-person accounts and highlights the desire to hear directly from artists in an unmediated way. Interview was an American magazine famously founded in 19... 69 by Andy Warhol that featured usually unedited interviews with celebrities, artists, musicians and creative thinkers. An indication of the level of resistance and critique is evident in Ian Burns' um, two essays. Art is what we do, culture is what we do to, to other artists, 1973. Uh, is Art History Any Use to Artists, 1985. Byrne, 10 years older than my peers, produced writing that took to the desire to take control of one's own history and context. Self-organised activities and DIY culture resulted in a plethora of independent and self-published activities by artists. There was a resistance to being organised by others, particularly in an institutional context. There was also a lack of institutional interest, which resulted in a plethora of our own self-organised projects in response. These independent projects by my generation and those that came after us um, continue till today. Since the 1985 Recession Art Exhibition, some significant publications have been written. For example, in uh, 1990, Benjamin H.D. Buchloh's essay, Conceptual Art, um, 1962 to 69, From the Aesthetics of Administration to the Critique of Institutions, October magazine, spoke about curatorial and administrative tasks as a central part of artistic labour. In 2016, Elena Filipovic wrote The Apparent Marginal Activity of Marcel Duchamp, published by MIT Press. 
this book provides a quite extraordinary insight into the other activities of the artist, not normally viewed as artistic, his non-art work as being a central part of Duchamp's life and career as an artist. Filipovic's research focuses on what she considers to be his fugitive tasks, such as exhibition making, art dealing, administration, publishing and self-curatorial strategies, and I quote, these fugitive tasks were a veritable life's work, end of quote. Filipovic's approach is useful here as it, it helps clarify issues explored in the, the lecture by focusing on artists' other activities and strategies. In her view, these non-art activities represent curatorial operations. And she notes, motley as these activities are, included as they do, Duchamp's role as administrator, archivist, art advisor, note-taker, publicist, reproduction maker, and salesman of his own hors d'oeuvre. They co coalesce around his repeated and engaged role as curator." End of quote. On reflection, looking at these developments, it seems useful to re-evaluate the 1985 exhibition in relation to these new insights. Thus, the Recession Art and Other Strategies exhibition showed a loose group of artists using what could now be considered to be curatorial and administrative operations in the production, distribution and display of their artworks. As a group, we were thinking through how art works were produced by their exhibition context and how this affected their reception, what curatorial and presentation strategies could be employed, and also questioning the institutional imperative. Strategies such as collective titles were employed, which grouped artworks together and thus operated as an umbrella encompassing a diverse range of products. Think of Peter Tyndall's Hand Space or John Nixon's Self-Portrait Non-Objective Composition Archive or Depository Agencies. Parallel practices that sit outside their main artistic activities. Strategies that use temporary and published exhibition spaces. The temporary spaces with their invitation, notification cards, often of short duration, often in public and private locations. Speed of actions with small audiences. These uh, actions were determined by the artists themselves. Artists were responsible for their own promotion and how their work was viewed and provided their own professional support structures, allowing them to increase their output and to get around gatekeeping by commercial galleries and institutions, or limits on opportunities to show artworks. In 1983, I defined recession art in the following way. Recession art refers to art which is made under the pressure of little money and an insignificant art market. It tends to be small, easy to produce, store and dispose of. It includes the development of new strategies for the sales of works, the possibility of placing parts as they sell with replicas. It is an art based on the limited means of production, speed of production and small size of constitutional units. 
which, since they can form larger works, do not restrict the artist in the scale of works. It is also an art based on intellectual rather than on formal qualities. I would like to claim that this exhibition is still relevant to the contemporary world and to current art practice. In 1985 exhibition comprised of a loose group of five male artists interested in changing and sharing their common philosophy and approach to art practice. It was responding to the local Australian context 35 years ago. An undercurrent of interest in this exhibition and catalogue have remained across that time to the present. Over that time it has bubbled along beneath the surface of contemporary art and has been referred to by subsequent generations of artists and met with puzzlement and dismissal by art historians. There was a small number of catalogues produced originally, yet years later they continue to be traded on the second-hand book market for very high prices indicating a continued interest. Why then has the exhibition remained relevant? Today it feels like we have reached the end point of most recent wave of optimism, now nearing the end point of substantial government funding for the arts, which has been declining consistently for years. From the founding of the Australia Council in late 1967 to the present time, arts funding has gone through a cycle of uh, optimism to the present point of decline, from boom to bust in just 53 years, compounding the current situation in which the pandemic threatens the social, economic and cultural fabric of Australia. In this space, where the cycles feel as if they are drawing to a close, Artists and arts infrastructure are increasingly being thrown back onto their independent resources. The personal infrastructure that supports art practice, um, one focus of the exhibition, is not often talked about. Approaches to practice and how these are developed into methods and strategies still remains an important consideration for most artists. It's also important to consider organisational approaches and structures that artists have used in the past and still remain useful today. While a lot has changed since the time of this exhibition, its concerns remain relevant uh, while acknowledging ever-changing contexts and, and generational differences and often resistance to what has gone before. From the Paris Salon through to the present, artists have always changed their tactics and strategies to suit the philosophy and the economic climate that they find themselves in. In small arts communities like Australia, the need to individuate your art practice from fellow artists is a powerful concern. Equally, one needs the support and friendship of your peers in a competitive environment. As artists, we negotiate a complex environment of support and competition. Often um, positions and approaches to practice are negotiated and renegotiated, evolving over time. Often external factors are impacting upon how artworks are received. What remains is a need for artists to think 
strategically about our practice, their art community and what they think is ethical and appropriate in their specific historical cultural context. Just recently, Mama Online Mini Audio Library has been made available. Curated by Amy Stewart, Ella Sutherland and Emily Floyd, the audio library consisted of a selection of theoretical texts of which the recession art essay is just one. This suggests that in the present context, the ideas that underpin uh, this exhibition feel familiar, relevant and current, that there is still very much a need for artists to think critically about career development and strategies for a future practice. Artist strategies made visible through the artworks in recession art and other strategies continue on into the present and are relevant to the present context. As we encounter another difficult art economy, these ideas and strategies, I would argue, are worthy of continued reflection. Ha Ha was first recorded in 1974. It can be reheard shortly. Thank you. Ha 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 I also wish to acknowledge that we're meeting on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nations. I wish to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who may be listening or watching this discussion. I recognise their continued connection to land, waters and culture, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm delighted to be invited to join this conversation. I come at this discussion as an artist and arts worker, now based in Melbourne, but who spent my formative years in Ipswich and Brisbane. My practice, although formerly rooted in film and video, has become increasingly concerned in artist-led bureaucracies, organisation building, and methods of artist agency making. After graduation from the Queensland University of Technology, I worked at Metro Arts in Brisbane, and our office looked out over Edward Street into the IMA's old gallery where Recession Art and Other Strategies was held some two decades earlier. As an artist in Brisbane, especially before GOMA, the cultural narrative of the city remained overshadowed by the legacy of right-wing authoritarian politics and its perception as a cultural backwater. The counterpoint, of course, being the existence of vibrant and resourceful DIY communities that persisted and indeed thrived in the music and the arts, including luminaries such as Aboriginal artist collective Proper Now. Writing of Proper Now in 2010, Margot Neal reminds us that the formation of a collective such as Proper Now was seen as a means of addressing structural disadvantage and providing the collective voice necessary to give artists more equal access in a way not afforded to them as individuals. They give voice to the voiceless and actively claim space for marginalised and excluded people within public spaces of mainstream cultural institutions. It's worth remarking on the broader cultural shift in artist critical agency that was occurring in the 1970s and into the 1980s in which artists were willing to take a more active role in shaping the art historical narrative. The IMA was founded in 1975 within a changing national political climate. After the Whitlam government, which while short-lived, ended 23 years of conservative rule. Under Whitlam government, with its aims to modernise the Australian welfare state, 
a range of new policy areas opened up, including the area of arts policy. Although the Australia Council for the Arts was already established in 1967, it was during the 1970s that patronage grew um, with increased economic stability across the national arts community. At the time, Whitlam eloquently said, I believe that the formation of an independent Australia Council will inaugurate a new era of vitality and progress in the arts. The creative art and creative artists of all kinds will enjoy a new measures of security and status in the community and that the Australian people as a whole will have new and wider opportunities to participate in the arts and enjoy the emotional, spiritual and intellectual rewards that the arts alone can provide. The 1970s was also pivotal to the development of Australia's contemporary art as we know it today. Social and cultural change began to occur as the result of women's liberation, Aboriginal rights and recognition, multiculturalism, the end of the white Australia policy, free tertiary education, as well as alternative art spaces, all of which brought about a new heterogeneity. The IMA emerged within this complex time of change, described by Professor Robert Lingard as an interesting manifestation of the coming together for particular material and cultural conditions. I draw attention to the historical context of the IMA not only as an example of alternative and contemporary art space, but because of their early succession of artists, directors and managers, which included John Nixon, Barbara Campbell, and of course, Peter Cripps each with distinct, deliberate programming method, uh, methodologies. The role of the artist director is one that taps into an intriguing notion of artists as double agent, fleshed out in an article published in 2014 in London Journal After All. In this article, it is discussed how artists reroute the institutional impulses of the art system by taking day jobs that feed into their artistic practices, acting in effect as double agents. To quote from this article, the artist's double agent slips between the gears of the institution, advancing at once the company's dime and his or her own. In this sense, the artist director has to be a double agent. They are both arbiter and ally. For me as director of bus projects, an artist-run gallery here in Melbourne, my time is spent mostly on the other activities that support the making and presentation of art. Activities that help champion forms of collective agency making and interrogate working conditions of individual artists. As part of this work in 2016, we initiated a conversation amongst a group of like-minded organizations to establish a network called All Conference to build greater solidarity within the small scale and artist run sector after the Brandis raids. This collectivizing work resulted in the publication of the 2019 publication, Permanent Recession, a handbook on art, labor and circumstance. As I stated in the preface to the book, permanent recession is a term attributed to Peter in a conversation I had with Professor Robert Lingard. It's a justifiably provocative term that referred pointedly to the working conditions of progressive artists during the 1970s and 80s. Lingard reflected on Peter's observation that artists' working conditions existed in a sort of permanent recession, a condition that, according to the research presented in the more recent publication, uh, has only worsened over the intervening decades. In the key research paper produced for the publication by Dr. Ben Eltham and Catherine Ryan, they state that the most authoritative recent data on the incomes of working artists in Australia by Throsby and Petoskaya puts their mean annual income from artistic practice at 28,800 in 2014-15. However, this figure obscures the large number of artists who are earning substantially less than that figure. The median figure given by Throsby and Petoskaya is just 12,000 per annum. As this is the median figure, it means that half of all working artists earn less than this figure. 
By way of reference, the Melbourne Institute of Applied Social and Economic Research puts the Australian poverty line at 26,912 in June 2015 dollars. The median household income for a single person in 2015-16 was 84,400. The disparities in the data show that while audiences and collectors are flocking to see and buy Australian art, working visual artists in this country suffer significant levels of poverty and disadvantage. This points to an endemic market failure in the visual arts sector, characteristics of cultural and creative industries in other countries and at other times. While art markets can return spectacular growth for lucky investors, they are much less able to deliver decent incomes for artists. The Permanent Recession Book is intended to be a collective resource, providing strategies essential for the future integrity of the sector and of the Australian arts ecology more broadly. The publication combines new research around the small-scale and artist-run sector in Australia, contextualised within a catalogue of republished texts going back to the 1980s, so as to situate new research within a rich continuum of thought and debate about the Australian art-making context. The ideas and modes of practice exemplified within the Recession Art and Other Strategies exhibition and catalogue, and unpacked further in Peter's discussion, resonate strongly over the decades, especially the elucidation of other strategies as encompassing techniques for alternative display and presentation of art. With acknowledged lineages and a variety of artistic movements, it was a way of acknowledging that artistic practice can deliberately incorporate curating, publishing, exhibition making and running art spaces and is not limited to the creation of physical art objects. This is something that Peter Anderson also articulates in his essay to accompany his 2016 exhibition, Ephemeral Traces, Brisbane's artist-run scene in the 1980s. He says, a key thread that runs through the exhibition positions it within a wider consideration of what art historian Terry Smith has termed infrastructural activism. It examines the pivotal role that alternative spaces and artist-run cooperatives and supportive site-specific organisations have played since the 1970s in the growth and diversification of infrastructure for the visual arts. In such a framework, it becomes necessary to focus not simply on the creation of artworks, but also to develop what might, we might think of as an expanded view of artistic practice, one that treats a wider range of activities as essential components of an artist's practice. What has resulted is a redefinition of the role of the artist, which centres acts of publishing, curating, designing and running gallery spaces within artistic practice. We continue to see this dynamic play out in excitingly intersectional ways today, led by First Nations and culturally diverse artists, creating and controlling their own spaces and putting forward their own art histories. It is my view that the affection with which recession art and other strategies is held today, particularly by artists, is because it was a project by artists for artists. It is the kind of important project that can only emerge when an artist has agency over each aspect of the presentation of their work and the work of their friends. It was coupled with a softly spoken yet strident manifesto that articulates a collegiate moment for a group of artists that was acutely aware of the circumstances of art's making and the power dynamics at play in its reception. Ha Ha was first recorded in 1974. It can be reheard shortly. Thank you. Ha Ha was first recorded in 1974. It can be reheard shortly. Thank you. Yes, I will. There's such a thing as the unwritten 
Ha Ha was first recorded in 1974. It can be reheard shortly. Thank you.